Welcome to The Dish, the show that uncovers the stories behind the world's most famous dishes. We are your hosts, Tomo and Megzi from foodfuntravel.com. Join us and expert guests with tasty facts, foodie secrets and more. In this episode, Sobrasada, the regionally protected Mallorcan sausage that's very different from Spanish chorizo. But why are they all different sizes? It's nothing to do with commercialism, it's actually a food science thing. Also, Ensaimada, an epically flaky, geographically protected pastry. We explain how Mallorca's calorifically delicious dessert is made so light using an unexpected secret ingredient. Plus, Mallorcan cabbage rolls and the nifty little secret to making the perfect cabbage roll. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Dish. Hello, hello, hello. It's time to talk about what to eat in Mallorca. Yes, this is something I'd like to learn all about because this is a trip Tomo did without me. Yes, I was very lucky to get sent to Mallorca and Megzi was not allowed to come. Mm, I'm in exile. Sad for her, but I learned a lot and ate a lot and it was awesome. Sorry. Yeah, you will be. Yeah, I know. I'm still paying for this. Yeah. But it was very tasty. And Mallorca, if you don't know, it's an island from the Balearic. In English, sometimes we call it the Balearic, but that's because we're pronouncing it wrong. Is that like Caribbean, Caribbean? Yes. Yeah. Except Americans are pronouncing that wrong. <laughs> no, who knows? English people are pronouncing this wrong because we call it the Balearic, but it's not as the Balearic. Balearic Islands. And Mallorca is the largest island in that chain. It is just off the northeast coast of Spain and currently is part of Spain, but it wasn't always part of Spain. We'll talk about that in a minute. But before we get started, just a quick reminder, please do subscribe to this podcast if you enjoy it. Make sure you do, whether you're on iTunes or anywhere else, subscribe. I know, we love seeing the little numbers go up. They're going up and up and up and up and up as we see all of you lovely people subscribe. And it's, it, I don't know, it, it warms my heart. Well, if the numbers go belly. up, it makes us want to record more episodes. So that's good for you guys. And it's good for us because we prefer doing this to doing other less interesting things. Totally. So I like going to Mallorca. It was fun. And I would like to do more of that rather than sitting in front of a laptop all the time. Fair days. So, you know. Do it. Subscribe. Leave us a five-star review if you can. If you can't leave us a five-star review, don't leave us a review at all. Because, you know, why would you do that? Just don't do it. Just listen to a different podcast. Drop us an email instead. Yeah, just drop us an email. Let us know what we're doing wrong. And then we'll try and improve things. And um, we'll come back to you. That'll be great. Yeah. All right. Mallorcan food. Sometimes for the English spelled Mallorca. Yeah, that's what, my mom said. that's what my mom said. She's like, oh, you're going to Mallorca? And I'm like, no. It's Mallorca. But I don't know which spelling is definitely correct. I believe it is the M-A-L-L-O-R-C-A. Not the M-A-J-O-R-C-A, because that would be well, Mallorca. Well, so I with think looking Mallorca up like, all the tourism boards and stuff like that, and they're not spelling it with the J. So I don't even know where that came from. But I guess it's like that Marrakesh like the way of spelling Marrakesh is, is two like different ways. the French ways. and the English yeah. version or something. I don't know. Who knows? Not super important. No. Just saying that given how it's pronounced, I believe it's a double L because that's a Y sound in Spanish. Could be totally wrong. 
not completely fluent in Spanish. Anyway, as with most of the world, Mallorcan cuisine has been in constant flux, of course, over the centuries, based on all the different influences from all those people who lived there and conquered the islands and that sort of thing. And of course, also influenced with trade and the local produce and the climate. So, you know, it's like everywhere. There's a lot going on. Everywhere's, yeah, lots going on because it's in the Mediterranean. It has had a lot of people coming in and also, out over the years. I mean, this is a little topical, but uh, Spain just got voted like the healthiest country in the world. Wow. So, they've got their, their food going on. They're, they're doing all right there. I think we already knew they had their food going on regardless of the I health. Know. <laughs> it was still tasty. It's always been tasty. It's influenced the whole world so much, which is pretty crazy. Spain has had one of the, the biggest influences across the planet. Big time. Yeah. Yeah. To so many places, Philippines, and I mentioned that later as well. Yeah, Spain's got everywhere. But uh, Mallorca has had a very large variety of people who've come in in the past few thousand years, and Mallorcan food incorporates the influences of its neighbors while also having some of its own sort of Mallorcan cuisine that's very much like a, it feels like it's from here and not necessarily from somewhere else, mm-hmm. or a little bit of a blend. It's so hard to say. You think something's completely traditional, and then you go like, oh, 100 years ago didn't exist. Yeah. But it's become so important that you think it's traditional. I know. That's why this podcast keeps like- We find surprises all the time. It keeps tripping us up all the way. We're like, yeah, they've been eating that forever. Oh, what? Someone invented that in 1956? Dang. <laughs> yep. So, let's do a quick lightning round. I'm just going to bash through all of the different people who have been leading Mallorca over the past couple of thousand years or more. Archaeological evidence shows that habitation as far back as the Neolithic times was going on. That's 6,000 to 4,000 BC. Pretty so old school. have been people there for a while. Hairy men. Their food may be not quite as relevant today. They're not just killing a hare and eating it on a barbecue. Yeah. But, you know. Hey, still good. From the 8th century BC, the Phoenicians were in charge. And this led eventually to governance from one of their principal cities, or at least somewhere that they were, they were taking over. I'm not sure of the exact history, but it's called Carthage. It's in North Africa. If you listen to any history podcasts about the pre-AD times back in the BCs, you hear about Carthage a lot. It was a big deal in North Africa. All it, right. You know, it was them versus the Romans sort of deal going on. Okay. They were, yeah, if they were big. So. And the Phoenicians. This was all Mediterranean stuff, but you need to listen to history podcasts for that. Uh, I the, will not, but I will take your you, word for won't it. Won't you? Well, I've listened to a few. And, yep, yeah, that's why I got you around. Yep, the Carthage and the Carthaginians. I'll just sit around listening to my true crime podcast. <laughs> You can, You'll have me do all the research. You I can fill me in on the history. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. But the Romans took over Mallorca in 123 BC. Good on them for keeping records because no one else did. So we have an exact date. They were good for that. They were very good for that. Uh, they ruled for much of the next thousand years after that as well with the occasional invasion. Specifically, one big invasion was from the Vandals. Yes, it's, hey! it's not a band and it's not a word that means people who break stuff. It was an actual group of people from Europe who invaded lots of lots of places. 427 AD, they went in and took Mallorca. So their name is quite appropriate because I'm pretty sure they vandalized a few things along the way. They started the whole vandalizing. There you go. They were the ones who started it and now we're naming things after them for breaking stuff. Uh, eventually, the islands were taken by the Moors from North Africa in nine. 907 AD. So the Romans were totally out by that point. Uh, they also conquered all of southern Spain. So your Granada, Alhambras, mm-hmm. like the, the big uh, architecture there, the old buildings, that's all from Moorish rule. Othello was just getting around doing his thing. Yeah. Yeah. So after that, 
Catalan turned up, and they took the islands in 1230 AD. So that's Barcelona, and at that time, Catalan, Catalonia was a bit bigger, and so it incorporated parts of southern France and all around that region, and they also took the islands. And then Catalan actually remained in charge for almost 500 years until the War of the Spanish Succession, which is well after the Moors, the Arabic peoples had been sent back to North Africa and chucked out by the Christians. And then they decided they would have this big war of deciding who was in charge of the whole region. And the Spanish Succession decided that they would unify all of Spain and incorporate Mallorca into that and all of the other Balearic Islands. Ah, so who does Mallorca identify more with? Well, being there, it was quite interesting talking to people. They said they identify as being from the Balearic Islands. Oh, okay. So they it's, are what they are. Yeah. yeah, it's just like, this is, we're from here. They're not Catalonian. They're not Moorish. They're not Spanish. They are Mallorcan. There is rumblings of the idea, just like in Catalonia, that they want to be independent from Spain. Yeah. Whether they all stay with uh, the Catalan region or whether they all try and become just independent islands, I don't know. They make a lot of money from tourism, so they probably could self-sustain pretty well. They also have quite a lot of natural resources. They're a big producer of wine, olive oil, all the important things that you need to survive. Anyway, no one's here to listen to politics. That's a totally different podcast. So anyway, what the history shows is that, of course, there's traditional Mediterranean influences, which have all become fused together throughout the whole region. But these have combined with the Muslim Moorish influences from North Africa, Catalan cuisine, and of course, more modern Spanish cooking that came in after that as well. So it's a little bit of a mix of all of that, which is great. I love a hodgepodge. We, I mean... Almost everywhere we go, it ends up turning into a big fusion thing. And you're like, yeah. is any of this food really from here? And some of it occasionally is, but some of it is not. And some of it is the culture taking on their own version of a dish and making it very much theirs. Yeah, which is exactly why in today's day and age, people should not be complaining about fusion food. Because it's just innovation. Like It's just food. It's just food. Yeah. It's all fusion food. Everything's oh, you fusion can't, food. You can't have... Like, okay, this is going to sound really weird, but there's like a sushi place here in Portugal that we go to that does like sushi with like mango and strawberries and stuff like that. And I haven't tried it because I'm like, that's some weird stuff. But I'm just saying fusion is not always a bad thing. It, I mean, it could be. Sometimes it is a bad thing. Fusion it can be a bad thing. All food could be bad or good. Or fusion good. has historically been a good thing because it has created so many fantastic I'm now, foods. I'm now thinking that my referring to uh, strawberry sushi is probably not the best idea about, you know, trying to talk about the progression of fusion. No. But, you know, they're trying. Let's they're go with something go. more obvious like risotto. If they hadn't brought rice in from Asia... There would have been no and risotto. And mixed it with cheese. Or risotto. I've never heard an Italian call it that, so I don't know. I don't think they call it that. It's an American thing. I don't What's think I've ever about? had risotto in, in, in Italy. Oh, you messed up. I tried. Do you remember I was leaving Venice and I was trying to find risotto because apparently Venice is the birthplace of risotto and I got it at the airport, so I lie. I did have it in Italy, but the airport doesn't count. I had white truffle risotto in Bologna and you definitely tried some. So I have had it. So let's talk about some specific dishes. There are actually a lot of dishes that Mallorca have turned into their own, even if they're not originally from Mallorca. And if you're on a short trip, there's no way you're going to get to try all of them because there's loads. I managed to get through 33 different things in my trip. I'm very impressed. I really powered it out of being like, I need to go and try this now and I need to go and try this now and this now. So... Because usually we go as a, as a pair and we can like half it out and it, we can get through so much more between two people. But one person taking it on, like, 
there were other people in the group, fortunately, so <laughs> got to share food with other people. But I'm not going to talk about 33 Dishes today because that would be crazy. But if you want to head to the episode notes and the full article, it's foodfuntravel.com slash Mallorca podcast with a double L rather than a J in the middle. And you can find out about everything that I ate. But we're going to talk about some of the most important dishes. And the first one is sobrasada. Mmm, I saw the pictures. Sobrasada is a cured pork sausage made with pork loin and pork belly or bacon, paprika, salt, and pepper. Sometimes you can get the spicy version as well, which has cayenne pepper added to it. Yes, exactly. Uh, you could say it's sort of similar to chorizo, but I would say it, it's a unique Mallorcan version of chorizo. It looked denser. It's actually less dense. Ah. It's actually softer. Now, the tradition of making cured pork sausage, it actually didn't exist back in the, the Muslim Moorish rule, of course, because they went, nope, no pork. No porky pork. So until Catalan came in in the 13th century, there was no tradition of making these sausages. And the addition of paprika, of course, didn't turn up until peppers came back from the Americas. Mm -hmm. So sometime around the 16th, 17th century, they would have started making sobrasada similar to how it's made today. Before that, they would have definitely been making sausages, just not with paprika. Probably with pepper instead. Yep. Yeah. yeah. They, and they still put pepper in them as well sometimes as well. It, it just depends on the exact recipe. Although the recipe is somewhat controlled because this is actually an IGP product or PGI in English means protected geographical indication. We talk about this in a few episodes. It's a really big thing in Europe now where they are protecting the way that products are made so that you're saying this is a traditional product yeah. and you can't just change it. Yeah, it's definitely something you should look out for in your travels because it just means it comes from that particular region and it's made in the way that it's the like some authority has designated that this is the traditional authentic way to make it and this is the only place that traditionally authentically makes it as it should be. Yeah, they have guidelines and you can only call it that product. It's like champagne. Everyone's heard of champagne being only called champagne yeah. if it's from champagne. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, in case you're not aware of that, we talk about or it in feta. some other episodes. Better as well. Better cheese now also has to be specifically Greek from mm. Greece. Otherwise, it's not. So, yeah, it's one of these products. It's specifically from Mallorca. It can't be made outside of the islands there. And Soprasada, as I said, it is quite different from chorizo, even though the ingredients are very similar. But it's actually down to the climate. And we've heard this before uh, going through yeah. Italy as well. Like the ham, the parma ham in Italy is different because of the microclimates that they've got around that region. And the high humidity with mild winters that they have, it's what affects the curing process. And actually, yeah, it's not a dense sausage. It might look dense on the photos, but actually it's very soft. It almost seems like it's a fresh sausage, but it's not at all. It's mm. definitely a cured sausage. You can eat it cold. You can eat it raw. And the tradition of making these sausages actually began with a very specific cultural tradition, the mantanza, or mantanza, depending on how you pronounce it. Uh, they have it in Spain as well as Mallorca. And it's late in the year when families gather together for the annual pig slaughter. Oh! So it's a big deal. They're going to kill all the pigs and they're going to make all the products for the rest of the year. It's such a good thing to get families together for. <laughs> yeah. 
Vegans need not apply for this cultural experience. I've I've said this before. I would totally be vegetarian if I had to kill my own. Although if you grow up on a farm, it's just life and you just get on with it. Like I'm such a privileged little princess. Well, for people who don't have access to pork all year round, it wasn't just a family gathering. It was essential. They needed to kill the pigs at the right time of year. So then they could get the next generation coming out for the following year. And then they needed to stock up on this cured pork sausage that would keep them going until the following slaughter. So they could survive. So, yeah, this is like their food for the year. People didn't have as much money back in the day and they couldn't afford to buy meat all the time. And this was their meat for the whole year. Vegans, listen to that with your privilege. (laughs) You can cut that out. (laughs) Yeah, I I might. I might not. I'll think about it. There's what I found really cool was there's actually lots of different forms and sizes of the sobrasada. So you think maybe with chorizo that like it's the, the one shape and maybe occasionally it's a bit bigger. Like, oh, if, yeah, I've got this. Because you buy it in the supermarket all the time and it's the same chorizo. But when you go and buy it, I went to Seville afterwards and I bought chorizo and they had lots of different sizes of chorizo. So when you're actually in the destination, they've got all these different ones. Now... What they have with Sobrasada is they have the small one called Yonganisa. Yonganisa, we had that in Mexico as well as like a word to mean a smaller sausage. It just sort of meant sausage. It was sort of different there. Yeah. Different usage of the word. Uh, They have larger sort of medium-sized ones called Kula or Pultrums. Probably pronounced that completely wrong. And they have the largest ones, which are called Buffetes or Bisbe, which apparently means bishop. So it's like the the bishop, the the big sausage. (laughs) He's the big sausage. (laughs) (laughs) What? Wow. <laughs> but the reason they make different sizes is not because they're trying to sell them at market and impress people with the crazy sizes of the sausage. It, <laughs> and that could be a curious way to say and phrase something. I mean, most people are trying to impress with the size of their sausage. Most people want a bigger sausage yeah. because they're like, well, I've got a bigger sausage. I get that. But that's not why the people in Mallorca or I guess in Spain as well, that's not why they're doing it. Actually, it's because a smaller sausage will cure quicker. Oh, of course. So that yeah. means the sausage, if they make a small one, like the yonganitsa, it's going to be ready to eat within a few months. Whereas the huge ones, they're going to be ready to eat like in the summer the following year. Uh, so they so, make it the different sizes so it lasts them throughout the seasons. Yeah. So they're like, okay, so in January, February, we eat the small sausages because they're ready and then the meat just cures over the year. That makes so much sense. How smart is that? Yeah. I had no idea. I thought it was just like, hey, it's commercialism. Let's sell different size sausages. Look at my impressive sausage. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see what happens. We'll buy these. It's nothing to do with that. It is because they had to make sure the pork would keep and if they made all small sausages, it would cure and then it would eventually go off. It'd be too, too soon. dry. It'd be like too cured, like too done. Yeah. Yeah. It wouldn't, wouldn't be any use. So, yeah, they made these giant ones, which would keep all through and they would just cure over the whole, whole year. And they'd have something to eat before the next pig slaughter. There you go. So that's pretty crazy, eh? They had it together back in those days. We don't. Well, I don't think we have it so together. Not in terms days. of uh, producing our own food at home, but yeah. in terms of things like medicine, computers, <laughs> we're doing a little bit better than yeah. back in the day, so can't complain. It's really easy to find this Sobrasada, though, because it's this IGP product. It's the most famous product in Mallorca. They literally sell it everywhere. And they also use it in almost every dish, because as I said, it was like one of the main forms of pork that local families would have for the whole year. Yeah. So they figured out all these different dishes where they'd slice off just a bit of pork and mix it in with their vegetables or Just whatever to give, to give it that flavor and protein yeah. and everything. So yeah, super smart, really, really smart way to make the meat keep and 
make the best of uh, of all the uh, the slaughter, I guess you'd yeah, say. Yeah, yeah, totally. So yeah, if you want to grab some sobrasada, which you should, you need to get it. If you're taking it back to England, and one of the ladies was here on my trip, she wanted to take some back to England, and apparently they've got all these strict rules now. You have to get it vacuum sealed to get it through customs. So you can ask the people in the markets to vacuum seal the sausage. If you just buy it as is, you might not get it back on the plane. And it'll be like Australia and you get back there and they just go, you can't have this and throw it in the bin in front of your face. Oh, that is sad. Cry. Cry. They will take it off you. So don't do that. Make sure you ask them to vacuum seal it. And if the store you go to won't vacuum seal it, just go and find another store because it would be so sad to lose. This amazing. Travel with a laminator. (laughs) Take your own laminator. Portable laminator. Why not? One of the most famous markets in Mallorca is called Mercat de l'Olivar. And one of the less famous ones, if you want to do something super local, is called Mercat de Pere Garau. And you can look on our article, foodfundtravel.com slash Mallorca podcast. And you can find out the links to those because obviously you probably haven't figured it out from the way I've pronounced it because I've probably done it all wrong. It's all right. Go check out the article and go get yourself some sausage. Exactly. Next up, another word that I'm going to pronounce wrong. Uh, Coca Mallorquina, also Coca di Trempo and the Trempo salad. This is sort of like a mix of two dishes in one. Coca is Mallorca's popular form of dough made with flour, water, plenty of olive oil, yeast, and salt. It's used to make lots of different dishes. So you'll see quite a few dishes that have the word coca in them or at the start of them. And it's just referring to it's something that's dough-based. Yeah. Although coca may be made from any type of flour, Mallorca has a very special local flour that may be used in some versions of coca. A traditional local flour called shesha is made from the Shesha wheat variety. It's an ancient grain that is native to the island of Mallorca. Oh. So they've got some really old traditional grains that didn't really grow anywhere else. So this is the crazy thing, because actually when I think about Mallorca, I don't envision it to be really big. Like, It's not that big. I mean, you can drive from one side from the south in the capital in Parma to the north side in about an hour. Okay, so it's not that big. But they still are growing grains. Well, islands have these crazy ecosystems and, yeah. you know, this, like, yeah, they've got these natural things that happened that hadn't spread to other parts of the mainland. And, yeah, I mean, they still need grains. They need things to eat. Even an island that size, if you think how much smaller the population would have been a thousand years ago, they would have been subsistence farming. And Yeah, no, yeah, fair enough. Just yeah. like anywhere else. Yeah, they're making use of the land. And even now, if you get on the bus, although there are lots of big towns, there's also lots of space in between the towns. Yeah. It so is not overpopulated. Still lots and lots of farmland going on. So yeah, this shesha wheat produces a medium dark brown bread. So it's a, a nice... I like a nice brown bread. A nice rich brown bread. But specifically... For what we're talking about here, Coca di Trempo is the most famous version of this Coca Mallorquina. And the Trempo is the salad part. So it's the topping that goes on top of the bread. And it's very simple. It's made from diced onions, bell peppers, tomatoes, lots of olive oil and salt, obviously. So it's like a little bruschetta. I guess, yes. It is a combination between a bruschetta and or bruschetta. Oh, how have you said? We can't... Bruschetta. So different accents. Bruschetta. It's a combination between a bruschetta and a pizza, mini pizza. Mm. So it's quite a very thin flatbread. So the coca in the coca de trempo 
is super thin, like paper thin. It cooks up to be just this really crispy, almost biscuity type of base. Ah. Which typically I don't love, but on this occasion, with this really tasty flour that brings so much flavor to it, and all of these toppings, it doesn't have cheese on it. It's got just the salady vegetable toppings on it. Because there's so much of that, and it's like a half inch thick of topping. So it's like a fresh salada. It's like a cracker. So it's like a cracker, but it's not like a cracker because it's, it's sort of closer to a thin crust pizza base. Nice. Okay. And yeah, because you've got so much topping on top, it brings all this juiciness to it. So instead of like, if you get those horrible thin crust pizza bases that just have a tiny bit of cheese and tomato sauce, and you're like, eh, so dry, and it's, it's so horrible. Dry. But this is not at all. It's got so much juiciness. They don't overcook the vegetables, so they stay really fresh and juicy. And it's really good. And this is like the sort of thing from what I saw from the pictures. It's like you can just pick it up as a snack along the way, right? You're like, I'll just have like one of those and be on my way. There's loads of them in bakeries. So any bakery you walk past, and I'll mention a few bakeries as we go through this episode, you can just grab one of these. And Good on the go snack. Real tasty snack. Very flavorable. Um, But we actually, when we were on the trip, had a really fantastic Coca de Trempo with fresh little sardines thrown on top. So it had all of the regular salad stuff and then just like one little sardine per slice just brings this salty hit because they were very fresh sardines. They weren't horribly fishy like you would hate. This was just (laughs) salty, salty, brilliant. I'll take your word for it. (laughs) (laughs) I liked it a lot. I bet you did. I bet you did. Now, there's a secret to making this crispy base because we actually did a cooking class at Clandesti restaurant where we made this. So we got to see exactly how they did it. And what they do is they use silicon paper or baking paper and they roll out the dough on the paper so it doesn't just stick to the bench and then you end up breaking it because it's on the paper. You can just pull the paper up and then you flip the paper and you put it straight on the baking tray and it's ready to go. Super skinny, super skinny base. So what do they do before baking paper? I don't know. They made it thicker probably. Yeah. Or they just messed it up. (laughs) (laughs) Just broke half the time. (laughs) Thank you for the invention of baking paper. So, yeah, the cooking class at Clandestine was really fun. Uh, it's this crazy venue that's sort of like Dracula's Castle meets 80s disco meets hipster street art. Yes. It's so strange, but it's amazing. That sounds, that sounds like the place I would absolutely want to hang out at. There's just like neon lights underneath all the benches, so they glow pink and stuff like that. And then you've got like animal skulls on the wall. And then street art around the kitchen area. And it's, it's so weird, but it's really cool. That sounds I loved cool. It. That sounds cool. We tried loads of great food there, actually. And what they focus on is they make contemporary versions of classic Mallorcan cuisine. So the, we don't have time to talk about all the dishes because there were so many dishes that I tried 33. Not just there, of course, but I had 33 different Mallorcan foods. And really cool place. Definitely try and do the cooking class. You can check that on their website. And of course, just check out our show notes, foodfuntravel.com slash Mallorca podcast. And you can find out a bit more about them and get the links to all of that stuff. All right. I'm going to do a mini breakdown of a few main courses because those two things I just talked about were sort of starters and snacks and products. And we don't have time to do lots of breakdown. A lot of the main courses I didn't find that there was loads and loads of history to them. It's just like, this is a dish that's been around for a while and it's got this in it. Yeah, fair enough. So I'm not like, there's no big story behind these things. But we do have some desserts coming up later. In fact, this is going to be a dessert-heavy episode. Wow, that's not like us. No, that's uh, we barely make it past more than one dessert in an episode, if any. And so we're going for at least two in this episode. (laughs) Hey! 
<laughs> Control yourself there, Tomar. Pretty Tarf. crazy. Woo! But let's uh, lightning round out a few awesome Mallorcan main courses that I loved. Now, my absolute favorite dish was called pica pica. Pica pica. Sounds fun, eh? It's squid cooked in a spicy tomato and onion sauce with a bit of bay leaf. Super simple. Yep, it sounds Really, great. really basic. As I said, there's no big story to this. It's like, you know, they've got seafood. They're an island. They've got tomatoes and onions these days. Keep what it are you simple, do? keep it tasty. But why I love this so much is because the seafood flavor of the squid sort of just gets soaked up into the whole sauce. So if you're a seafood fan, which Megzi is not a massive dirty seafood fan. No. She likes- A little bit here and there. She likes sashimi. Clean, fresh, super fresh, but I like it when it's seafoody and you can really <laughs> taste the sea. And yeah, this is great. All of the squid goes inside the sauce and everything, the whole dish tastes like the sea. Love it. Another dish called tumbe is considered to be the Mallorcan version of ratatouille and having likely derived from that exact same cultural influence. Like the Venetians coming in and introducing ratatouille or is it French? I believe ratatouille yeah. is French. And of course, Catalonia, a lot of the southern parts are French and part of the language is French and Spanish mixed together. And so it's going to come from that, not some influence, not some weird Venetian French influence. Okay, no, cool. It's pretty definitely after the Catalonians turned up cool. that that's where it happened. And because this dish is made with potatoes, eggplant, bell peppers, which are fried separately, or at least, well, the three of those ingredients are fried together. And then a garlic tomato sauce is made separately on the side. And then you combine them at the end. So it sort of means that you've still got a bit of like texture to the original vegetables. They haven't just been stewed in tomato sauce for hours. Yeah. Which I, I think with ratatouille they are. I'm, yeah, yeah. You, I think. I don't, I, we haven't done an episode on ratatouille, so I might be wrong. Maybe you are supposed to cook them separately, and I've been doing it wrong for <laughs> 10, 20 years. Yeah, all I know is your ratatouille, yeah, so I don't know. my ratatouille tastes similar to ones I've had in France, so I don't know. But yeah. So that's the thing. You mix the two together at the end. Obviously, a lot of these ingredients like tomatoes, bell peppers, potatoes, they're all new world ingredients. This dish would not have been something that came in the second the Catalonians turned up in the 13th century because none of these ingredients were available. Maybe they had a dish that bared some similarity, but it's more likely something that's evolved a bit later on. So in the, yeah, probably 16th, 17th century. Another really cool dish is lomo con col which is a pork loin stuffed inside a cabbage roll. Uh, you know what? Yep. Cabbage rolls. I love Great. cabbage rolls. I love cabbage rolls. Anything st- wrapped in cabbage rolls, I just seem to love. I don't get it, but I do. It's, I don't know. It's just a good way to contain foods. Yeah. Put them inside a cabbage roll. It makes you feel like it's healthier than if you put it inside of a, a big old tortilla or something. Yeah, a little bit. Now, the difference with this cabbage roll, as opposed to many other cabbage rolls around the world, is they use slices or chunks of meat rather than mints. Mm. So they're not mincing up the meat. It's big big pieces. Now, cabbage rolls have probably existed at least from the Stone Age, and I'm not kidding. Yeah, no, no, no. They've been around forever. There's actually some crazy archaeological evidence about that that we talk about a little bit in the Romania episode. You can go back and check that out. I think it's season two, episode three. We talk about a bit of the history of cabbage rolls. But Mallorca's version of this is very much focused on the meat part. Mm-hmm. The, they put a lot of meat inside the cabbage. And I'm fine with that. Of course you are. Mm. And pine nuts and raisins are a typical oh, ingredient. Oh, is that Moorish influence? Well, I don't really know. The raisins side of things that probably seems, is. Yeah. But whether this dish existed then, as we said, cabbage rolls have been around for so long, it's quite possible. But I don't have any specific history on this. Oh, said, it's been a bit difficult to track down history for every dish. Only a few of the dishes have really interesting histories to them. Now, the pork that they use 
I mean, today it's all changed because there's factory farming, etc. But Mallorca has their own their own pig. That's the Mallorcan black pig, the Negra Mallorqui or Mallorqui. That is, it is crazy because, I mean, we just discussed before about how, like, it takes an hour to drive from one end to the other, yet they have their own indigenous pig. Yep. It's a different genus that's separate from other pigs. Mm. So, yeah, this black pig is native to the Balearic Islands. And I have to say, if you've ever had black pig, there's just something about, about it. Like, you go to Korea and they're like, we're all about the black pig. And you go to, well, here in Portugal, they're like, we're all about the black pig. Spain. We're all about the black pig. Like, oh, it's just there's something a little special about its meat. Well, I'll tell you why it probably is. At least for Mallorca, it's supposedly because it's a more fatty breed of pig. There you go. Ding, ding, ding. Now, I don't know if that's true with every black pig breed around the world, but the Mallorcan one is a fatty pig deal going on, which is going to make everything better, right? Of course. Yeah. Why Yeah. For Lomo Concol, the cooked pork is then wrapped in cabbage and other ingredients are added. As I said, pine nuts and raisins are an option, but also very popular. You normally put a bit of sobrasada in, so the sausage. Oh, so it's the chorizo. Yeah, the local chorizo. Dirty. Yeah, mix that in for a bit of extra flavor. Apricot can also be an option, so you got Ooh, that fruity, extra fruity hit. Yeah. So you don't have to use raisins. You could use apricot, dried apricot instead, or you could use both. And the coolest trick I learned, because we've made cabbage rolls at home loads of times, and they're often really tricky to get right. Yeah. What they do is they roll the cabbage leaf with a rolling pin to flatten that little sticky up bit that comes from near the stalk. Yeah. So when you pull it off, you've always got that sticky up bit, which ruins your cabbage rolls because they don't stay together properly. They use a rolling pin to flatten that. And it doesn't destroy the cabbage leaf. It just makes it nice and flat. How did I never think of that? I had no idea. So there we go. Food tip. We're not even a cooking podcast, but there you go. You can go make your own cabbage rolls. Roll out the stem bit yeah, with a- Just one with, quick roll with a rolling pin. That's it. Ding, ding, ding. And then you've got a perfectly flat piece of cabbage every time. That makes so much sense. Rather than cutting it out, because cutting it out ruins your roll. Oh, okay. This is, I've had an Oprah aha moment. <laughs> I seem to remember you, uh, you steam or boil the cabbage first. Yeah, then, yeah, yeah. Then you do that because if you did I that boil. when it was, I personally boil yeah. it. So I'll boil it for a bit and then I'll I'll roll it up. But still, sometimes it can just be like a little. Oh, you stiff. still have the sticky up bit, but you roll it after. But to roll it, yeah, that makes after so you've much sense. It so that it's already a bit soft, and then you just flatten it out. I think if you roll it when it's completely raw, it will just snap. No, that won't work. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. So that's the trick. There we Cabbage go. Cabbage rolls like, for us next week. I love doing cooking classes because mm. I always learn these really cool new tricks. It's fantastic. It's how the locals do it. That was, the cook- that was also part of the cooking class I did at Clandesti. We did try this dish at other places as well. And I can't guarantee what dishes they'll make if you go and do the cooking class there. But I totally recommend looking them up because it was a very cool place. All right. Now it's time for our double dessert round. Are you ready for sweets? I'm ready. I'm ready. You can I'm handle it? I'm so interested because you never get to sweets because, I mean, you said you ate like 32. We've got to sweets so many times in these episodes. We keep saying every time, we never get to sweets. Let's do a dessert. <laughs> I think almost every episode where we said that, we did a dessert. So yeah, there's always true. one. There's always one. Well, now we've got two. Okay, let's so do it. I feel like the more we travel, the more we find desserts that we'll actually eat. Okay, this first dessert is the most famous dessert of Mallorca. It's called Ensaimada. Ensaimada is incredibly light and very flaky pastry. It's sort of like a super light croissant. Okay. 
So yeah, this has got that texture where it's just all these little tiny layers that have all puffed apart. I love that. I would sit there peeling every single layer apart and eating them all individually. Oh yeah, you'd take like two hours to eat one ensamada. Yeah. It would be pretty crazy. I love it. But it's flatter, much flatter than a croissant, and it's big and it's round. Well, it doesn't have to be huge, huge, but it, you know, it's a flat, round pastry. It sort of looks more like a Danish pastry, but sometimes they are served as very big like family size ones that are sort of 20 inches across. Yeah. 15 inches across that. Like full size, big pizza size. And so when it's that big, it's sort of like a scroll, right? It's sort of like maybe like a big Cinnabon. But They're all like a scroll. Yeah. But they're not like a Cinnabon scroll. No. Well, In fact, I'm going to explain okay. exactly what the sort of the look of it is. Now, the basic version of this, they top with lots of powdered sugar, but there's also some more complicated versions that are topped with slices of, of fruits, like sugared fruits and um, fruit compote and that sort of thing. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, the classic one just topped with sugar is what you'll see most places, but you can get like dirty versions with lots of fruit on. Now, Ensomata gains its incredible texture and flaky layers from lard. In fact, oh, of, course, of course, it's lard. What are you going to do with all that excess pig fat? Well, let yep. me tell you, let's make a dessert. Well, that's it. Lard keeps really well. So once you've made your sobrasada, you're going to have a bunch of fat left over. What are you going to do with it? Mm. So yeah, in fact, the word Sam in Ensimada, the word Sam means lard. That is what the word is. And actually, the translation of Ensimada is enlarded. <laughs> much, mucho, mucho larded. <laughs> yep. Many lards. And so, yeah, it's lightness and flavor derived from the specific way it's made, as well as the huge amount of lard. The flour and lard-based dough, so there's, there's lard in the dough already. It's rolled paper, paper thin, like super thin, like you can put, you pick it up and you can see through it. Wow. It's really thin. I don't even know how people do that because there's so much fat in it, I guess. And then, in case you didn't think there was enough lard in it. I didn't. No, because obviously you're like, it doesn't sound like there's enough lard. If I can see through it, I must need more lard. Well, the way to make it so you can't see through it anymore is to smear it with dense coatings of lard. That sounds about right. Yeah. So, yeah, you got this paper thin dough smeared with lard. And then they roll it into a tube. So they literally roll it up like wrapping paper into yep. a little tube and then they coil it. And that is then left to sit for hours and hours and hours to rise. So the dough ferments, so the flavor improves, but also, of course, air grows inside it so that this thing's going to be super flaky and light. Yeah. So it's just going to be airy. Yeah. The longer really it sits, airy. the most the more incredible it gets. Now, a lot of websites say it's about typical to leave it to rise for 12 to 18 hours in that form. So you put it on a baking tray, just leave it for 18 hours. I heard it was more like 48. That's the thing. Now, the place I went and actually saw this made, they said they leave theirs for 48 hours because they reckon it makes it much lighter and better. And to be fair, their pastries were fantastic. So I'm not going to disagree with them. Yep. Just the other sources, no one says that anyone leaves it that long. So I don't know. That could be a special well, case. Well, you know, people are impatient and people also don't necessarily have the time to leave it that long or... Well, just make more batches. Yeah. You just start two days earlier and then you're sorted for the rest of the year. Just make it yeah. two days in advance. I guess you'd have to just give it a taste test, like a 12-hour, a 24-hour a and a 48-hour and see which is the tastiest of them all. Well, apparently these guys who are very experimental with their production of classic recipes, and I'll talk about them in a minute, they leave it for 48 hours. That's what they told us when we chatted with them. And it's then baked at very high temperatures so that it cooks real quickly. It gets a little bit crispy on the outside and nice and 
airy on the inside. And of course, those layers just expand. And because of all the lard between it, because it's rolled up, it's just this paper thin roll. But every single part of that roll is going to expand and separate because of so much fat in between. <laughs> what shocks me the most is something with this much lard, when you bite into it, it's so light. I was just thinking this. I was like, uh, so I was like, how is this light and how is this a dessert? I can't tell you how this works. <laughs> I saw the guy in the bakery smear lard everywhere. He must have put like two tablespoons of lard smeared onto one tiny pastry. And yet it somehow just dissolves and disappears. Maybe it soaks out of the pastry onto the baking tray. I don't know. But it's so light. It tastes lighter than a croissant because croissant's so buttery. It tastes sort of yeah, like dense almost. And you can taste the fat. But this... You can't. You bite into it, just go, there's no fat in this. This is healthy. <laughs> this is air dessert. Surely. I don't know, but it's amazing. It's, it's just one of the most unique pastries mm. I've tasted. Really, really good. Now, Mallorca claims that the Ensaimada originated in Mallorca. The exact date at which this might have been created is very unclear. Of course. Uh, it happens all the time. But the earliest written recipes for it only appear from the mid-18th century. But prior to those recipes, there is a legend that claims that a Jewish baker presented the Ensaimada to Jauma I of Aragon, who was the king of Barcelona and the Catalonians at the time. Mm -hmm. And that would have been when he conquered Mallorca and the baker went, please take this food and don't kill me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it's the 31st of December, 1229. We have yum yums. Be nice to us, please. Yeah, we'll make you these. And uh, apparently Jauma was very impressed with the food, but... That's a legend, not written record from what I can tell. Other food historians believe that the pastry probably predated the more modern version, because of course there was no lard at that point, because it was Moorish rule, and, yeah. a, and a Jewish baker wouldn't have been making pork lard either. Oh so, no, I didn't think of that. Yeah, so there would have been no lard in it when they that's first not, turned up. That's not kosher at all! Totally that's not. That story makes no sense. So there's another pastry that would have existed on the island, or probably existed on the island, that would have predated the Ensamada, which is based on Moorish cuisine, and it's called Bolemes Dulces, or at least in Spanish it is. It's a, a, another sweet dessert, but instead of using lard, they would have used butter made from sheep's milk. Yeah, that makes sense as well. So yeah, they would have just covered it in butter instead of covering it in lard. They just filled it with dirty dirtiness. They're like, whatever dirty dirtiness you have around, just smear it in that. Now, of course, it wouldn't have been called Ensomada then, because it wouldn't have been made from lard. And the word basically True. means in larded. So, True, yeah. So, yeah, it's almost certain that it's an adaptation of an earlier pastry that eventually became lard-based, because people just went, got a lot of lard floating around, and it makes it even better. Mm, it does. I like that lard is making a resurgence. Like There was this whole time where it's like, ew, lard is yucky. But it was like only a couple of years ago where people were like, ew, butter is yucky. And it's like, just use butter. It makes everything taste better. What I say to those people is, try butter. And you'll realize it is not it yucky. It is amazing. And butter, you can have pretty much by itself on some vegetables, whereas lard, I probably wouldn't smear my vegetables with lard. I wouldn't, I admit. But I would not. in other dishes, lard is amazing. Maybe they need to rebrand lard. That's the issue. I think they are rebranding lard. They are, uh, well, I mean, That's I think it's, it's the name. It's like lard. People are like, because you remember your grandma going, I used to eat lard smeared on slices of white bread. And you're like, that town sounds tasty, grandma. Jeez, I hope they bring that back as an afternoon school snack. But 
I think they need to rebrand it to call it something like, I can't believe it's used to be lard. <laughs> I can't believe it used to be lard. <laughs> <laughs> something like that. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> That sounds pretty good. I yeah. think you should contact the lard people. I will. I will. Like, I'm um, emailing them right now after after we finish this. Yeah. I've I've got a, a thing for you. I can't <laughs> believe it's not. It used to be lard. I can't believe it used to be lard. <laughs> that sounds pretty good. Now the ensobado is such an important dish that it has also gained an IGP or PGI. So it is just produced in that region, and. I certainly saw a lot of people actually walking onto the plane carrying their own takeaway and sabatas when I was leaving. They sell it, when you're taking it away, they sell it in this really cool looking uh, octagonal box. So it's just, mm. yeah, it looks like a cool gift to take. And you know, the bottom of the box has obviously got spotty, lard, fatty bits on yeah. it, which always happens when you buy pastries and things. But yeah, the boxes look cool. And it's fun. And so many people taking away. It has become a very popular dish. And I can understand why. It's just, it's so light. It's crazy. But yeah, as I mentioned before, I went to see them actually making these. And that was in the basement kitchen of Fornet de la Soca, which is a bakery where they're trying to rediscover and recreate the historical recipes of Mallorca and very the Balearic cool. Islands. I love places that are doing stuff like this. Yeah, exactly. They're searching out forgotten recipes or searching out like the traditional ingredients that made recipes that maybe have been updated with like non-traditional ingredients. So, you know, they're using the old flowers and they're using older things that would have actually been used in the past. And although Ensamada is definitely not a recipe that has disappeared from popular consciousness because it's everywhere, Fornet de la Soca or Fornet de la Soca is a great place to actually have a wider selection of traditional bakery goods. So not just Ensamada and Coco de Mallorquina that I talked about earlier on the pizza, little Mallorcan pizza. So rather than just the standards and some of the pies, they are doing lots of other cool things that you won't find elsewhere. Nice. And watching these bakers make the Ensamada... I think if you'd actually seen it, I mean, I was telling you how much lard there was, but if you'd actually seen it, I think you would have a foodie breakdown. <laughs> I watch, yeah, I watched this guy, like he makes everything by hand, bare hands. He's not wearing gloves. Who cares? Nah, you don't need that. Food standards, like you don't need that stuff. You're making it the proper way. He literally was just dunking his fingers. Because there are fingers. a lot of people that believe the thing that makes dough like the best that it can be is the warmth of your hands and the... Mm. You know, it, it's bacteria and natural yeast in your hands, perhaps as well. I don't know about bacteria, yeah, but it's really a warm thing. So if you're wearing gloves, you lose that contact with the dough and it doesn't make it as good. It's, it's really this warmth to warmth thing that actually makes dough really soft and really plush. And that's what you want from it. That's why you love what grandma makes, because she's just like, you know, making it with her own hands, where if you get it from a store, it's like machine made or made with gloves and it just doesn't have that TLC that that hand, you know, it's like holding a newborn baby. It needs that touch. Well, this huge dude in the basement was definitely giving it some TLC. Yeah. Some hardcore TLC. And yeah, watching him scoop his his big sausage fingers into the lard bucket (laughs) and just pull out, I don't know how much lard, and then just lather it literally lathering it all over the pastry it's crazy so yeah i don't know how many calories is in this and we probably shouldn't talk nope, about that that's so no nope, moving along yeah moving along There's no calories calories don't count when you're on vacation 
Moving along to our final dish of today and our second dessert. Second dessert! We've never done two desserts in an episode before. This is crazy. All right, so this dish is called flau. Sometimes called flounds elsewhere, but not in Mallorca. It's called flau. Uh, it exists in quite a few parts of Spain and Catalonia. I actually even read that there's a version of it made in Cyprus. I don't know how it got that far away. It must have yeah. just been a random trade thing. They went, oh, I like this. I'll make that. Yeah. So who knows? People were trading things and someone moved there and went, oh, I make these. And then everyone started making them because like, yeah, it's tasty. Yeah. It's tasty. But apparently Ibiza, which is one of the other Balearic Islands next door to Mallorca, they claim that they actually invented this. And really? They- They're not just... Believe it or not, club music was not part of the Ibethan culture before the 80s. I don't believe it. Or 90s. Nope, I don't believe it. That was not, the Romans were not rocking out to some hard house in BCs. Are you sure? I'm very sure. I've read a few history books on this. They were getting the lambskin G-strings and just... You know, lathering up and lard. <laughs> Lambskin G-string. <laughs> Neon candles. <laughs> and just sunbaking in the in the lardy, lardy, lard times and, and just oomts, 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 oomts. <laughs> Yeah. No. no. No? Oh, okay. I don't think they were doing that. All right. Continue then. All right. So, yeah, Ibiza, they claim that this was their... Their dish. It's terrible that that's the idea of Ibiza, and they're really trying to change it. They're really, really pushing hard. They're like, Ibiza, bring your family. And everyone's like, yeah. Bring my family to the nightclub? No, Mm, thank you. They are trying. They are trying. I I shouldn't judge. I've never been there. I am sorry, Ibiza. I've not been. I am being judgmental. Invite me. (laughs) Change my mind. Yeah, invite me, and we'll we'll let people know if it's actually a good place to go. But Mallorca is definitely family-friendly. And single-friendly. I think Mallorca was a nice all-round balance of everything. I did actually Mm. really enjoy the time there. So, the Ibethans claim that this dish, flour, was something they were making before the Catalonians turned up in the 13th century. The earliest written reference to this, apparently, is from 1252. A dish with history! Dang! This never happens, although I couldn't find an actual source for that written reference. (laughs) But I did find a source... For an actual book written by Ramon Yulis or Ramon Yulis. He, sa- he sounds legit. He sounds legit. Just go with that. Yeah. Uh, the book's called Blanquerna and it's a novel that was written in 1283 and apparently he mentions Flau in the story. I did not read the whole novel to find out if he mentioned Flau. Ah. Uh, but the book seems to exist and people sounds- say he did. He sounds like an honest person. He's well, called Ramon. Exactly. Must be true. Yeah. So, I mean, that's like one of the oldest written references to any dish that we've talked about in this episode or on the actual article as well. So, you know, this apparently was a thing. When the Catalonians turned up, this writer went, oh, flour. Nice. Ibethan flour, it's sort of like a cheesecake made with cottage cheese, eggs, sugar, and mint. And sometimes aniseed is actually added as well. Now, the Ibethan version is more like a pie. And the Mallorcan version that I found, this was at Fornea de la Soca, because they're making all these historical recipes. Mm-hmm. It differs from the Ibethan version, which I've seen photos of. Obviously, as we said, we haven't been to Ibiza, but the Ibethan one's more like a pie. The one in Fornea de la Soca is more like a, a little, a little like three inch across little pastry, pastry around the outside and a big load of cheesy, eggy wonder in the middle. Oh, yum. But it's believed to highlight the fact that 
this would have been a Moorish influence that invented this dish. Well, firstly, it's got mint in it, which is very popular yes, in North Africa. Of course. That's a flavor that you would definitely put in. And of course, because of the dates of the references, it suggests that people found out about this dish Around after Moorish Catalonia. Yeah. After Catalonia invaded, they then had written references. It doesn't sound like all of these other places that claim that they have flour, which they do. They have it over other parts of Spain and Cyprus. Uh, it doesn't seem like there's any reference proving they had it sooner. So the Abethan version or Mallorcan version is almost certainly the original one, from what we can tell. Nice. Now, flour was a traditional dish eaten on Easter Sunday, specifically on Easter Sunday. And the reason being that it's the time of year when the fresh cheese that they were making, the cottage cheese, or requeson, that's another word, like a fresh Spanish-style cheese. don't know if that's the original word or if it's the word they use today. It would have been most creamy and most available because it was springtime. So they would have been making lots of dairy, and it had been creamy and awesome. Well, that makes sense because all of the mummies were feeding their babies. And so Mm -hmm. it's like, let's go get me some of that milk. That's the crazy thing because people didn't necessarily have dairy all year round in the past. No, they would have just had it in the spring. Today we stimulate cows and such to produce milk all year round and force their process. But in the past, they might not have had natural milk all the time. No. So it's different today. That you well, I mean, I guess that's why they would have made cheese, because it's something that lasts keep and keeps. Year. Yeah. Yeah. Especially hard cheeses that would mature for a very long time. As we were saying about sobrasada before, certain ones would take longer to mature, Yep. which means you'd have them later in the year. And then the fresh cheeses that they would use to make the flour would have been around early in the year during the spring when they were just coming straight out of the cow. There you go. Nice. So that's flour. And that's it for Mallorcan food. Wow. There's some... Okay, so when are we booking a flight to go to Mallorca? We might be going back to Mallorca soon. Yeah, please. Because, I mean, I, I really need to try all of this. Yeah, there were some very, very tasty dishes. And there's a lot more dishes. If you look at the full article, 33 different things, including food and drinks. Haven't even got around to mentioning drinks. We're not going to do that in this episode. So do check out the article, foodfuntravel.com slash Mallorca podcast with a double L rather than a J. And if you love the show, please subscribe. Please leave us five star reviews. Anything less than five star is basically saying the show's average. If you don't like the show that much, listen to something else. Lots of other good shows to listen to. I'm not average. I'm fabulous. Yeah. Not everyone's going to love the show and it's fine. We accept that. No, we get that. That's cool. You do you. It is not a problem. There's lots of shows that I don't love. And if I don't love them, I don't leave them a review. If I do love them, I leave them a review. Yeah, absolutely. You might not know this if you don't do podcasting and blogging and stuff, but it's actually pretty competitive and pretty difficult. And if people start leaving you one star reviews, even though you're actually doing a pretty reasonable job that most people love, it just it can mess up your entire show like it'll mean that your show just doesn't get ranked anymore just because a few people leave a one-star review which we've never had we've never had a one-star review but i mean like three-star reviews a couple of times not in this show not on this show and other shows and like just listen to something else (laughs) if you like the show you like the show if you don't listen to something else your review does not help people that you say that meg's too australian (laughs) <laughs> doesn't help people at all. I can't help that. I just am. They can listen to the show and make up their own mind if she's too Australian. No, but we love having you all here. Thank you so much for listening in. And thank you. Tell your friends. If you really like the show, please tell your friends. And uh, if you've got other foodies that you think they might enjoy this, share the love. Uh, also, make sure that you subscribe so that every time we release a new episode, it comes straight to your 
your little uh, wherever you're listening to, if it be Insta- iTunes or if it be Podbean. We love Podbean personally. I have it set up on Podbean so that when I get a new episode, it automatically downloads it for me to listen to. I like that. I think they do that on iTunes too, but I just like Podbean because we're Android. We're Android phone people, not uh, not Apple phone people. So that's why Podbean is great. Be what you be, do Android. what you do, but uh, subscribe either way. Yeah. All right. Not sponsored by Podbean, by the way. Just saying. We just, <laughs> no, no, we just no, happen no. to like Podbean. No, I just like it's Podbean. happens to be what we use. And that's what we're hosted on as well. So... Cool. That's it for this episode. If you want to support us more, then go to foodfundtravel.com slash extras and become a patron of the show. You can do that for as little as $1.50 a month, and then you also get access to bonus episodes. All right. That's it. And once again, show notes for this episode, foodfundtravel.com slash Mallorca podcast with a double L, not a J. All right. Thank you for listening. And we will be back with another tasty dish very, very soon. Thanks for listening to The Dish. Don't forget to subscribe and keep this podcast on the air by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen. Also, come join our foodie community on Facebook in the Food Worth Travelling For Facebook group. Catch you next time.